Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the book of Isaiah. We thank you for the prophecies that we've seen. We thank you for the way in which we've been challenged, the ways in which you have rebuked us, the ways in which we've been called to the worship of you, the true God, the ways in which we've been called to steer clear of idols. And tonight, Father, as we see the Lord Jesus in these songs of the servant, we ask, please, that you would give us eyes to see him clearly, that you would give us hearts and minds that stay well clear of any sort of desire or attempt to change Jesus. Father, may we see him, may we know him, may we live for him. Amen. There's a tiny bit loud still, Joe. Thanks. After Jesus died... His disciples were understandably confused. You can imagine the one that they'd been with over the last three years, the one that they were expecting to be the Messiah. He was the king, the one who was going to throw off all the shackles of oppression, the one who was going to, in the end, by his might and power, rule the world and certainly put Israel back in its rightful place. He was the one. And he was dead. And he wasn't just dead. He'd been mocked. He'd been scorned. He'd been abandoned by his followers. He'd been basically tortured and then crucified. The disciples understandably were confused. They were at a loss. What are we supposed to do now? He was the one and now he's gone. Now, there's a famous story told of two of the disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus after all this happened. Apparently, some of the apostles were running around saying that they'd seen Jesus alive again, and these two were walking down the road discussing with each other, what could this possibly mean? What's going on here? And Jesus, the risen Jesus, the alive Jesus, meets them on the road to Emmaus. Now, they don't recognize him for whatever reason. And as he walks along, he asks them, oh, what are you talking about? And they kind of go, you, are you nuts? Do you not know the things that have happened about Jesus and his death and his teaching and his apparent resurrection? And, but we still don't get it. And Jesus proceeded to explain to them who he is, what he came to do. And interestingly, he explained it to them from Moses and all the prophets. Now, unfortunately, none of the gospel writers thought to record for us what passages he used. I mean, wouldn't that be a fantastic list? Here is the list of passages that Jesus... Here is two ways to live, according to the Old Testament. Right? I mean, that's, that's what you would have gotten. It would have been brilliant. But I would not be surprised if these four passages that we're going to look at tonight would have been in that list. These four so-called songs of the servant in Isaiah... They paint, I think, the clearest picture in the whole of the Old Testament of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it is vitally important for you and for me that we submit our own knowledge of who Jesus is to the Scriptures, that we learn from the Bible who Jesus is. Once you start changing Jesus, once you start redefining him, and choosing your own kind of Jesus, you're in very real danger of ending up in some very strange places. Let me tell you about a, a bloke I, I read about this week. Uh, I found this news article, and uh, I, at first I thought it was one of those satire websites, you know, Babylon News or whatever it is, the ones that are doing the rounds at the moment. That they, they post stuff, you have a bit of a laugh, you're like, hey, isn't that funny, but that's not really real, 
right. And, and I went and looked it up, and no, it turns out this guy's for real. Listen to the headline. This is from Christian, christiannews.net. Here's the headline. Minister who denies God's existence says, I don't appreciate being told I'm not a Christian. Minister who denies God's existence says, I don't appreciate being told I'm not a Christian. Here's some of the article. A Presbyterian USA minister in Oregon who says that he doesn't believe in God and doesn't require his members to believe either remarked in a recent article that he's offended by those who assert that he's not a Christian. Someone quipped that my congregation is BYOG. Bring your own God. Ah, I use that. I invite people to bring their own God. Oh, none at all, he says. You can take God, you can leave it, you can redefine it to your liking. See, the concept of God, he says, is a product of myth-making and God is no longer credible. Now, Jesus may have been historical, but to be honest, most of the stories about him in the Bible and elsewhere are just legends. And so he says, although he rejects the Bible as being literal, he denies the existence of heaven and hell, he takes offence when people tell him that he's not a Christian. Christianity, well, I'm a proud minister. I don't appreciate being told I'm not a Christian, he says. We've already let go or de-emphasise all these beliefs. Heaven, hell, the Bible, Jesus, that Christianity is the only way. And we still practice what we call Christianity. Now, John Shuck, that's, that's this guy's name, he's a bit of an out there case. right? This is a kind of extreme level of redefining Jesus. Redefining Jesus such that you can just do away with him altogether. He doesn't matter. He's gone. I can take it, leave it, bring whatever you want, make what you like of all of this, but I'm still a Christian. Don't you dare say that I'm not. Now, I hope, I sincerely hope that that's not you. If, if you think that you could agree with this guy, please come and talk to me. Let's have a chat. Let's have a coffee. Let's sort it out. However... We need to take the warning to heart. For the movement to redefine Jesus is strong. It's strong in the world. We see it in all sorts of religions that say that they are based in Christianity, that say that they follow Jesus, and yet when you ask them who Jesus is, you end up with all sorts of crazy answers, right? I mean, you've got the Mormons, the JWs, Muslims to an extent. The movement is strong in denominations, even within so-called Christian churches. The movement is strong in each one of us. It's not quite so explicit. We don't go around saying Jesus isn't real. But there are times in each one of our lives when we are confronted with decisions and actions that are very clearly a question of, will I obey and submit to Jesus as the Lord and God of my life or will I ignore him and do something else? And by ignoring him, choose to redefine him, to make him small, to make him nothing, to make him not really real. It's no surprise that for the last however many weeks, Isaiah has been warning of idolatry. That, that is idolatry, to take God and redefine it into our own image, for us to create God. And so as we turn to these four passages in Isaiah tonight, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to get a beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. What I want to do tonight is put that picture before you that you will see Jesus again, that you might think to yourself, that you might take stock, is this the Jesus that I know? I'm not really going to argue that the servant in these passages is Jesus. I think it's plainly obvious. So there's kind of discussion about that. But if you want to look it up, Matthew 12 or 1 Peter 2, both are places that quote these passages directly being about Jesus. 
All right, Isaiah 42. Let's get to it. We're going we're to uh, look at all four chapters. And as we get to each one, Philip will come up and read uh, a few of them again for us. So Isaiah chapter 42, page 703. Let me read it again. God introduces to us his servant. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He won't shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. Here is my servant, says God. Here is, I'm introduced to you, this character, the servant, chosen by God, empowered by God, filled with God's spirit. I can't help but think of Jesus' baptism as I read that first verse. The one who, as he walks down to the water, a voice from heaven says, Here is my son whom I dearly love. And the spirit in visible form of a dove descends upon him. As Jesus begins his spirit-empowered ministry. Notice what this servant will do. He will bring justice. Evildoers, the wicked, will be brought to account. You can imagine Israel, right? Assyria, Babylon, amongst all the many other nations that are around them. Those who oppress you, Israel, will be brought to account. All wickedness will face its judge. And not only will he bring justice, but he will bring justice in faithfulness in verse 3. And it's not an offer of justice. It's not a, oh, here, guys, would you like a little bit of justice? Take it, leave it. This one will establish justice by the power and might of God. It's a picture of a very powerful person. And yet it's kind of strange as well. Now, as we go through these chapters, it's going to be a little bit like a shadow that slowly gets filled in. Anyone know who Kaiser Soze is? The Usual Suspects. Who's seen that movie? Wow. No one here has seen it either. It's a brilliant movie. You guys rock. Kaiser Soze is, is, uh, is Kevin Spacey at his best, plays this, uh, this criminal who's been captured and who's talking about this shadowy underworld boss. And, and we get just this shadow of a picture that as we go on, it kind of gets filled in a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until the very end when we, well, things happen and it's revealed and all of a sudden it's filled in for us. It's a little, a little bit of Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes, if that's kind of your literature world, right? If, if you know, yeah, if you know, like this bad guy, who is he? We don't know much about him. We see the shadow. What's it going to be like? This is a little bit like that. We have the shadow of this figure, one who God chose and God delights in, one who will bring justice and yet... This one is gentle and tender. He will not shout or cry out. He will not raise his voice in the streets. Notice the care with which he handles the broken. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Just the last little red ember on the tip of the candle as it smokes. And you know how easy that is. It's gone. Even that... He will not snuff out. 
It's a vague shadow, and it's, it's kind of contrasting, almost contradictory. Such power that he will bring justice, and yet such gentleness that even the most wounded he will care for. And in fact, there's even a weirder thing going on in this passage than that. Did you notice who he will bring justice to? He will bring justice, verse 1, to the nations. He will establish justice, verse 4, on earth. And if you're Israel right now, you're thinking, brilliant. Finally, they're going to cop it, right? All of them out there, God's going to come, his servant's going to come, and bam, he's going to take them all out. You can understand why the disciples after Jesus' death were confused. Isn't this the guy who's supposed to punch all of them in the face and make us winners? And yet, what's happened? And stranger still is the last sentence at the end of verse 4. In his law, the islands will put their hope. What? How, how is it the law of this servant? And, and why is it that the islands, the very ends of the earth, will put their hope in him? Aren't they the ones who are about to cop it? Who is this servant? Well, let's look at Isaiah 49. Thanks, Philip. All right. Um, we're going to be continuing uh, and reading Isaiah 49, which is on page 712. Okay, Isaiah 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have laboured to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So in the first song, God introduced his servant to us. And the next two, the servant himself speaks. He tells us about himself and who he is and what he has done to do. Listen to me, he says, you islands. Again, hear this, you distant nations, a prophecy to the world, not just to Israel. 
Before I was born, the Lord called me from my birth. He has made mention of my name. Again, this is one known by God, chosen by him to do this job. I remember Jesus, the, uh, the beginnings of the Gospels, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God and with God, and the Word became flesh. Here is the servant that God knew before time. An angel appears to Mary and says, you will have a son. You will name him Emmanuel, God with us. And as this servant comes, he comes to fulfill God's purposes. He's made into a weapon. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me like a polished arrow and concealed me. A weapon ready to be deployed in God's right time. The nation of Israel had a job to do. They were supposed to show God to the nations. They were supposed to be the ones who heard the voice of God, spoke the words of God and obeyed God such that all the nations around them would see and know the splendour of the one true God. And yet they failed. And they failed miserably. And they failed continually. And yet here is this Israel, the one true Israel. See, verse 3, he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendour. The hidden weapon, ready to be deployed at the right time, that God's purposes might be fulfilled in the world. It's a powerful picture. It's a strong shadow, right? It's a little bit kind of, I mean, it's a little bit Sparta. It's a little bit 300 at the moment, what we're seeing up against the, uh, the reflection. Here is one who, though he is gentle, will bring justice on the world. Here is one who is a weapon that God has prepared. His words, his mouth are powerful. And yet again, very contradictory images. Notice what he says in verse 4. I said, I have laboured to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Verse 7, this one is despised, abhorred by the nation. This strange contradiction of one who is at the same time powerful yet weak. And he knows where his strength comes from. What is due me, he says, is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with God. And extraordinarily, this one who will bring justice, who will bring a new law, who will bring the gentle saving of the world, this very one, God says to him, it's not enough. It's not enough for you to just save Israel. It's not enough for you to just have this little group of people. He says, verse 6, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. All will see. All will know. And it won't just be justice, which is good news. Because if it was only justice, then all wicked, which includes us, would face a judge alone. 
But somehow this one person will encapsulate both the power of God to bring justice and the power of God to save and to save all. See, John Shuck, this guy who denies Jesus and wants to pretend you can be a Christian without all of that, who thinks that Christianity is just a culture and cultures evolve, right? And so Christianity has to evolve, it has to change and adapt and we can redefine Jesus, we can make him what we want. The day will come when John will face Jesus, the one who will bring by God's power justice and the one who will bring by God's power salvation. And you've got to wonder which side he's going to be on. It's pretty clear from what he says at the moment. See Jesus, see Jesus, God's chosen servant, empowered by God to bring justice to the world, gentle and tender, the one whose mouth speaks powerfully, the one who will bring a new law that all may hope in, the one who is God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Now let's see Isaiah 50. Thanks, Phil. Same from verse 4 of chapter 50. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me by morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I, ha- I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Again, the servant speaks. Again, he says, listen to me. Do you remember Israel's task? Their task was to hear the word of God, speak the word of God, obey the word of God, show God off to the nations. And the servant says, I do that. The sovereign Lord, in verse 4, has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Here is one who hears and who speaks 
He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. He hears, he speaks, he obeys. And he obeys even in the face of the worst that may come. All it took for the nation of Israel was another little king, another little army at their doorstep, another little, even in times of peace, in fact, it didn't really matter when, where or how, they would continually turn their back on God. But this one, the servant, well, verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Even in the face of shame and suffering and persecution, he still obeyed. Why? Because he knows, he knew where his strength came from. The sovereign Lord helps me. I won't be disgraced. I have set my face like flint. I know I will not be put to shame. The servant knows that God's behind him. He knows that it's God's power. Who can possibly stand against the one who is backed by God? Nothing, nobody will cause this one to fail. Verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. I vindicate. He who shows me to be in the right is near. And so who will take up charges? Oh, come on, let's face each other. Who's my accuser? Let's go. Bring it on. You think that somehow you can do something to me, says the servant. I have the power of God behind me and I trust on him to show that he was with me all along and that I'm carrying out his purposes. Jesus will face his tormentors. Jesus will face Satan and death. And still he will know that the Lord is with him, that God will vindicate him. The risen Lord Jesus could say to his disciples, I am he. The risen Lord Jesus could say, everything that I taught you was true because God raised me back to life again. The resurrection of Jesus vindicates him. I I don't know what Mr. Shuck makes of the, uh, the resurrection. Probably just labels it with all the other legends or so he thinks. He ignores the fact the resurrection is history. It occurred. And that one action shows that Jesus is the servant and that no matter what he goes through, or as we know in Jesus' case, went through, the power of God was with him to be the judge of the world and the saviour of the world. And so he turns and addresses us for a moment. He speaks to his listeners, to you, to me. And this is what he says. He says, be like me. Be like me. Trust God even in the face of shame and pain and suffering. Even when you're expecting the worst, the one who vindicates is near. Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, let him who knows that they are in need, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. The one who vindicates will save. He is near. But you know there's a warning as well. I don't know if you noticed it at the very end of this chapter. 
If you think that you can light your own way, if you think that like John Shuck, you can redefine God, you can change Jesus, you can make up whatever it is that you want it to be, you can adapt and transform into this beautiful butterfly or whatever it is that he thinks, note that there is a warning. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches. You go walk in the light of your fires, of the torches you've set ablaze. You who want to make your own way, go for it. Walk your own way. But hear this. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. The judge of the world is not one to be fooled with. He's not one to be trifled with. See Jesus. Know the one who God vindicated, who God raised up again from the dead to show that no enemy could hold him down, despite pain, despite suffering. The one who by the power of God is the judge of the world and the saviour of the world. And so it is that we turn to Isaiah chapter 53. So we've got this shadowy figure who seems to be a little bit too much. How can one person both be the judge and the saviour? How can one person both be gentle and bring wrath upon those who oppose him? How can all of that be in one person? Well, we turn to Isaiah 53. Now I'm going to read from 53 verse 1, uh, and, and I'm, I'm just going to read through it to start with. Hear Jesus. I, I don't know a better passage to tell you the story of Jesus from the Old Testament than this. Is this the Jesus that you know? 53 verse 1. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, Jesus, grew up before God like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. Rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us, we turn to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and afflicted. And yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. How is this one, this servant, the saviour of the world? By dying. 
It's not particularly glorious. It's not particularly powerful. It didn't accomplish might and an empire. And yet, in the death of the one servant, in the death of the one who by his wounds bore the iniquity of the wicked, God's power for salvation is brought into the world. Here is Jesus. His wounds should have been ours. His punishment was yours and mine. When the judge brings justice, every one of us deserved well, nothing but condemnation. Let's be honest. That's the truth. And yet, this one would die in our place. Now here it is in the Bible that Jesus would pay the penalty for us, that he would be a substitute for you and me, that he would atone, that he would bring reconciliation between God and man. You can't make Jesus into a good teacher, into just a healer, into someone special, into a figment of history. You can't turn him into any of those things without losing this, the very essence of the salvation of God, Jesus' death in my place and in yours. He suffered and he died. But remember, God vindicated him. Verse 10, it was in fact the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord will make his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. See, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. And be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Death could not hold him down. For after his death, God brought him back to life. He sees the light of life once again. And this one who is risen, he is the one in whom the will of the Lord prospers. How is it that one person can both be the judge of the world and the saviour of the world while by dying in the place of the wicked and being raised to new life with the power of God to judge? This is Jesus. This is the one who displays the splendour of God. And so God says of this one in verse 12, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for them. Jesus died for you. Is this the Jesus you know? We must not change him. We must not redefine Jesus. Now, it's, it's kind of hard to see where in our lives we do this. Few of us write essays in which we say we don't believe in Jesus or that Jesus wasn't real. I mean, that's, that's, that's not what we do. Rather, I think that we see it more often in our actions, in the way that we live. You know that feeling when there's that thing that you want to do and you really like doing it, but you kind of know that Jesus doesn't really want you to. And at that point, you have this decision. 
Do I believe that Jesus is in fact the judge of the world who will call me to account for my sin and the saviour of the world who died because of my wickedness? Do I really believe that and am I going to live that way or, ah, nah, I'm just going to do the thing that I want to do? He's not really the judge. He's not really. He mustn't be who the Bible says he is. I'm going to go and do my own thing instead. We need to live lives of holiness, like him, to display the splendour of God. And most importantly, we must not redefine Jesus when we think of salvation. Whether you're the sort of person who is really, really tempted to add, I've just got to do a few things. I've got to go to church a couple of times. I have to take communion. I need to be a good person. I need to, whatever it is. Whether you're tempted to try and add something to Jesus, we must not do that. His death is sufficient. Or whether you're the sort of person who thinks, I am so bad that there is no possible way that Jesus could save me. We must not redefine Jesus. He died in your place too for your wickedness that you might come and know him. This is Jesus. Do you know him? And will you join him in revealing the splendour of God, the majesty of his power seen in this servant, who will judge and who saves? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you once again for these songs, these marvellous images of the servant, your chosen servant, the one who we know to be, Jesus, who by the power and might of your word lived, suffered, died and was raised to new life. Father, the one that we know will judge the world in justice and in truth the one whose death as a penalty for us, the one who took our punishment, the one who was substituted in our place to reconcile us to you, that his death was your power for the salvation of the world. Father, keep us, please, far from ever wanting to change Jesus, certainly not to suit ourselves. Teach us, Father, to obey, to love, to live for him. And please, Father, help us to grasp firm to the salvation that there is in Jesus' death. And so, Father, teach us, like him, to reveal the splendour of your power, of sinners transformed, of the lost found, of those who deserved punishment, instead receiving salvation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.